0: This is Ken Rutsky, author of Launching to Leading, How B2B Market Leaders Create Flash Mobs, Martial Parades, and Ignite Movements. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett.
1: Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything discussed in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Also, if you're listening to the show right now, and you're not driving or operating dangerous machinery, please send me a tweet and tell me where in the world you're listening from. My Twitter handle is at MarketingBook. Today we're joined by Ken Rutsky and we're going to talk about his new book, Launching to Leading, How B2B Market Leaders Create Flash Mobs, Marshall Parades, and Ignite Movements. Ken Rusky is a B2B marketing consultant and has spent nearly 25 years in B2B marketing roles, including at Intel and Netscape in the 1990s. Since then, Ken has been the CMO at several startups, and he worked in marketing at McAfee, where he developed an executed marketing strategy that grew its web security business from $60 million to nearly $200 million. In the seven years with his own company, KJR Associates, Ken's clients have generated more than $6 billion in shareholder value through IPOs and acquisitions. In addition, several other clients have reached private equity valuations of more than $1 billion. Ken has an engineering degree from Northwestern and an MBA from Stanford. Ken, congratulations on launching to leading, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: Thanks, Doug. It's great to be here.
1: So I mentioned that you had a Stanford degree, and the reason I had to say that is because I have had more authors on the show with Stanford degrees than any other school. And so at this point, I'm required by podcast law to interview any Stanford person that has written a marketing book. And my only guess is that there's something going on at Stanford where they make you sign a pledge that you'll write a marketing book if you graduate from there.
0: Yeah, I never signed that pledge, but uh, (laughs) not a bad idea. Maybe I can uh, send that over to the business school. And suggest it.
1: Well, like Andrew Luck, the uh, quarterback of the Indianapolis Colts, I can only imagine he's working on a marketing book. He went to Stanford, but I think he studied engineering, just like you did as an undergrad,
0: right? And maybe uh, Trevor Simeon, Denver Broncos, is a Northwestern alum. Oh, uh, is working on his also.
1: Okay, yeah, we're going to have to change the name of the show at some point. But at any rate, well, let's jump into the book. And I want to start with the title. There's a lot in the title there. Can you walk the listener through the? five stages of market leadership as to help them better understand title of the book.
0: Yeah, and, and that is a great starting point for the discussion. And launching to leading are two of those five phases, as, as you know, Doug. And if you think about the evolution of a leadership position in a market, you know, most organizations, whether it's a startup or a new product line within a larger organization, a new product starts with a concept, an idea. And as you move that through from idea to product, you you typically launch it. And as you move then up into the marketplace, you become a participant or move into the third stage, which I call participating. And in participating, you're active. You're out there talking to clients. You're talking to prospects. You're proposing your value proposition out there in the marketplace. But you're really not breaking through yet. And in order to move from participating to the next stage, which I call breaking through, You really have to influence the context of that market conversation. And we'll talk, I'm sure, today about my viewpoint framework, which is how you influence that context and break through and become someone who's actually influencing the market conversation. And then if you're uh, good enough at that, you do move into the leading stage. And the title, Launching to Leading, uh, is really to talk about that journey and some of the pitfalls and some of the ways that you can uh, progress faster and more successfully through those stages.
1: Continuing that thought about the book title, can you briefly explain the concept of market leadership life cycle as it relates to flash mobs, parades, and movements? Very interesting concept.
0: Yeah, the idea comes from, it was inspired originally by no one other than a cartoonist from the 1920s named Walt Kelly, uh, and he wrote a cartoon strip called Pogo. And Pogo was, I think, a raccoon or a weasel or something like that. And in one of the uh, great cartoons that Walt Kelly did, Pogo grabs a baton and puts on a drum major's hat, runs in front of the parade and begins to lead it. And the caption says, if you want to be a leader, find a parade and get in front of it. And so the idea of marshalling a market parade is really built around the idea that markets have movement markets have things that are happening and those are really in the customer's context so as an example you know salesforce.com said this is about the end of software and customers were ready to stop deploying long drawn-out enterprise software implementations and salesforce saw that and they said the parade's about the end of software Let's us get in front of it, declare it, and be the leader of it. Before that, you know, you've got to get some original customers or the flash mob, which comes before the parade. And flash mobs are really about getting that first set of customers in the uh, launching phase to love your product, the so-called product market fit, and finding those early adopters, the ones who are going to be fervent advocates for you out in the marketplace. Leveraging that up to the parade, as I just talked about, is the next step. And you know that step can take you all the way into leadership. Some people are lucky enough to move to a movement where they're changing the world or changing the industry. And so that's kind of the third phase. But I've had clients and see examples all the time of companies that do a good job of marshalling and leading that parade, uh, going all the way through to IPO and very, very well. Established market leadership.
1: So, Ken, I want to ask you to expand on two quotes that are at the beginning and the very end of the book and sort of unpack it to help explain this idea of context. The first one is at the very end of the book where you say, if we allow established vendors to own the context with the buyers, there is simply no room in the market for innovative solutions And the second one is B2B marketers who control the context of the market conversation have a disproportionate share of influencing how customers perceive value. Explain.
0: Yeah. So if you think about it at the end of the day, Doug, uh, what is a market? If you step back and a market is really a conversation between buyers and sellers about the exchange of value. And the folks from a website back in the late 90s called the Clue Train Manifesto first said, Markets are conversations. And I think they really nailed it with that. But conversations don't exist without a context. And the context of the conversation in a market is really driven by two things the customer's world and the known available solutions to them. And so, if we can hook into the context of the customer's world and make them aware of our uniqueness with ability to influence what they value, in essence, what you're doing is you're tilting the playing field to your advantage. So you
1: mentioned Salesforce and there's a lot of non-tech marketers who listen to the show. So let's not get too far into that world. But can you explain how they basically did this when you mentioned the end of software, which it wasn't really the end of software, but it was the end of the perception of buying software, uh, how people had been buying it. Can you explain how they changed the context?
0: Yeah, that's a great example and, and maybe a little bit of an overused one, but we've got lots of other ones. But with Salesforce, What they did is they looked at the customer's world and they said, geez, customers are really, really tired of long, drawn-out implementations of products like Oracle and Siebel. They start, they have these great expectations, and they end up in this disillusioned state because the implementation takes years, they don't get a lot of value out of it, and they get frustrated by the complexity. And and I think what the Salesforce.com folks did was say – our value is to take all the complexity out of the customer's hands and implement it ourselves as a service. And what we position that as to the customer is it's the end of software. You don't have to deal with these big enterprise software deployments, which you've grown to dislike so much. And so the movement really became one from buying software to essentially using it as a service and renting it from someone like Salesforce.
1: And not having to upgrade it and keep track of all that. That's
0: right. That's right. And you take the administrative burden away from the customer. And the value they delivered was faster implementation. The value they delivered was better user experience. But the way they talked about it from a contextual standpoint to the customer was, this means the end of software for you.
1: Can you... Explain then, and we're kind of walking through the book, but I think it's important to to follow this route. Can you explain the three core competencies at which market leaders excel as it relates to what you describe as building the modern marketing race car?
0: Yeah, that's a great question and a a key part of the book. If you really look at successful business-to-business marketing organizations, they do three things really well. The first is they build what I call the engine. So they deploy all this great new technology and they create a capability to market uh, and to deliver content and programs to their marketplace.
1: So that's using like marketing technology.
0: Yeah, marketing technology products like Eloqua, Marketo, Salesforce.com, and the whole suite of you know thousands of things that they can apply. They're really discerning And understanding what they want to accomplish and getting the right engine in place. Uh, The second thing they do really well is they put the wheels on the car, so to speak. And they uh, build programs and content marketing and demand gen programs that essentially utilize the engine and complete the car. So you've got the wheels and the engine. And that car can be really, really efficient. The third thing you have to do, though, to be a leader is put the right fuel into the engine or else you're gonna just stall and knock. And the fuel that you need is the right messaging and positioning. And I see a lot of organizations who invest a, a ton in building the engine and putting the wheels on the car, and then just put old, stale fuel into that car. And you know those results typically aren't very good. So while they may be efficient, and they can generate a lot of leads, those leads don't convert to sales, and they're not effective because their messaging isn't relevant to the marketplace.
1: Do you think that messaging and positioning is really actually harder than the marketing technology and the content marketing?
0: I think it is changed a lot without a lot of recognition in the profession that what you need to do today is different from the way you positioned and message even five or 10 years ago. I always think it's been hard. Yeah, I think there's the perception that, well, let me figure it out, try something, throw it on the wall, measure and test it, see if it sticks, and then adjust it if it doesn't. And, and you know, all that A-B testing and in-market measurement is great, but if you're not in the right ballpark, <laughs> right. it can take you a long time to A-B test your way to success. And I think that's the fallacy that a lot of organizations operate under, uh, the other one that i see is you know we're going to brute force it with dollars and people and if if i had a dollar for every situation i've seen where people increase their marketing budget by 100% invest in new technology and then what they see is they see this awesome results in their you know lead metrics you know doubling or tripling their number of leads and then they turn around two quarters later and say Revenue didn't increase. What's wrong? And they're not saying the right thing to the right people. So those leads just aren't relevant. They're not meaningful and they're not effective.
1: There's one thing from the book here. It says, being great at content marketing and marketing automation without great positioning and messaging may make us efficient, but it will never get us to relevancy and effectiveness. That's right. Very well said. So let's go on to what I have to admit was my favorite part of the book, the viewpoint. And the viewpoint story. If you don't mind, I think we're going to be stealing that from my agency, <laughs> and we're, we're going to redo our homepage based on this. We're seriously thinking about doing this. It seems simple, but it's not, and I think it's hard for companies to do. So explain what a viewpoint story is.
0: Yeah, the viewpoint story is something that I've been working with over the last six or seven years. It really goes back to the beginning of this discussion, which is, how do you get in front of that market parade and lead it? And you know the context of a story that you can tell for your company, you can make a choice. You can anchor it in the customer's world, or you can anchor it on your solution. And then you can talk about the present, or you can talk about the future. And the viewpoint story takes you through a process of taking the customer from their current world to a transformed one. So the choice I make is to focus on the customer And how their current world transforms to the future and make my product or my offering secondary, the second supporting character in that story. And I use a metaphor called the hero's journey, which uh, some of the listeners might be familiar with.
1: Yeah, we've talked about on this show from uh, Joseph Campbell.
0: That's right. Yeah, What what really resonated for me with Joseph Campbell's story and how to apply it uh, to marketing is in Campbell's framework, the hero who uh, ends up in this pit of despair usually finds some magical gift and they use that magical gift to transform their world. So what I think is, why not make my product the magic in my customer's hero's journey, as opposed to trying to be the hero itself? make it the tool that makes my customer a hero so that they can take their world from one state to another. And you know, back to Salesforce, from a state of long, agonizing deployments to successful operation at the speed of the internet for my sales and marketing organization.
1: Okay, so let's get down to brass tacks. And you, you talk about the story. It comes in four acts. So right off the bat, it's pretty simple there. And I just, at first I thought, Wait a minute, how can this really work? Of course, I kept reading. (laughs) I kept reading. It's like, holy (laughs) cow, this really can work. So, you talk about the four acts. So, you get your story down to four acts. And first off, I think it's really hard for a lot of companies just to get it down to that. It really requires, it's like it's simple, but it's not easy. They've really got to think this through. And the other thing that I just will always probably be a problem for companies is to think more about the customer than about themselves and their own product is just is such a a difficult thing for them to do. But you talk about the four acts and they are you you refer to them as trend spotting, all pain no gain, better mousetrap and brave new world. Let's go through it.
0: Yeah, so the story always goes like this. The world's changed. It's not the world it used to be, whether that's a week ago, a month ago, a year ago or a decade ago. And I hook into that change and, and label that around what's going on with the customer. And so, you know, for example, uh, one of the examples we talk about in the book is a company called Zora that talks about the subscription economy. And their go-to-market was to say the world's changed. It's now a subscription economy. So act two is simply to say, you have an approach to solving problems that you have. And if you keep using the approaches that were built for the old world before this new reality, then you're going to be missing opportunities or have problems that you can't solve. And so act two is to essentially take that, you know, in the hero's journey metaphor, take that hero down into the pit of despair. All pain,
1: no gain, right.
0: All pain and no gain. And then we come in and say, what if you took a different approach? What if you had a different mindset? What if you harness some innovation against this problem and had this new mousetrap? And we don't go into a lot of details about what the new mousetrap is. We just say, hey, it's different. And then we focus on the brave new world, which is Act 4. Then I can take you to this brave new world where everything is great. And we're going to transform your world and make it a better one. So
1: uh, back to Salesforce, just because we've talked about that, it would be like them saying in Act 3 of Better Mousetrap, they are saying, what if you didn't have to keep up with uploading all this software yourself and constantly chasing after the latest upgrade, and you just did it this way and let it come to you over the internet? That would have been in Act 3.
0: What if you could configure it instead of customize it? What if you could out-of-box integrate with your existing directory structure or all those kind of technical implementation things? that are so much easier to do with the software-as-a-service offering. And at the
1: time, people might have said, there's no way. that You can't do that.
0: <laughs> I would
1: think that's how you'd know you have a good Act 3, is if people say, what? How, no, how, how can that happen?
0: Yeah, and, and what you want to do is you want to challenge their assumptions a little bit here. This is where things like the challenger sale or insight selling really come in, yes. which is, you know, first, let me challenge you about the way you see the world. Then let me challenge you about the approaches that you might take, because where I really want to get you to is this transform reality or act four. Yeah.
1: I guess, you know, as a a marketer, I've been kind of groping at these four areas, but it's never been kind of put together so cleanly. But just let's give an example of how these acts would work as it relates to this book.
0: Yeah, I actually talk about that in the book and uh, kind of eat my own dog food, so to speak. It's a
1: good Silicon Valley expression.
0: Exactly. And uh, Jim Barksdale, who I quote a few times in the book, was the CEO of Netscape when I was there. And he's an old Southern gentleman. I won't try to do his amazing, beautiful Southern drawl. But one of his great expressions was, if the dogs don't come off the porch to eat it, it's not dog food. Oh, I
1: love that. I had never heard that, but I, I loved it. And it, it was pretty good. I think it was almost better than eat your own dog food. If, if the dogs exactly. won't even get up off the porch to eat it. And I know my dog, he'll
0: he'll eat anything. Exactly. So uh, yeah, most of the things they shouldn't eat. <laughs> right. uh, so, so the idea in the book, uh, uh, you know, the viewpoint story applied to launching to leading goes like this. The world's changed in a way that customers and buyers are much more self-directed, information's become commoditized, and the number of competitors you compete with has dramatically grown. And if you take a traditional approach of feature, function, and benefit, right? We've now moved to act two. Uh, You won't break through, you won't be noticed, and you won't lead. So that's act two. Act three in launching to leading essentially says, what if you could connect your value to the customer's world through this thing called a viewpoint story? Then you could get to this new place where you're driving the value beliefs of your customer, you're leading the market in a new direction, and you're breaking through and winning. So very simply put, Act 1, again, is the change buyer. Act 2 is you don't succeed, you don't break through, and you're not noticed if you go about it the old way. Act 3 is take the new approach of breakthrough marketing. And Act 4 is then you can move up this marketing leadership curve that we've been talking about. Now,
1: can you say a little bit about the term breakthrough marketing as it applies to your book?
0: Yeah, I use the term breakthrough marketing to essentially say, how do you break through this crowded information overloaded market. You know, I've got a lot of years doing this. And when I started, I was actually a sales rep for IBM. And, you know, the approach you had back then was essentially to walk into a customer. And if the customer asked, what do you do? Or can I see your product? Your answer is, well, I'd love to show it to you, but let me understand a little bit more about your needs. Let me qualify you some more. You never quite said it like that, but that's <laughs> what you were doing. Before I spend my precious time, Mr. Customer, Showing you things the world is totally changed. Most of the buyers today Might know more about your product than your sales rep does. That's a scary thought, right? So you're you're sending people to represent your company who may actually know less about what you do than the buyer does Because the buyer has access to so much information so much peer review So much, you know in the internet and social media that they can be extremely uh, knowledgeable before you walk in
1: yeah you know, let me just interject, Ken. That happens, apparently, the automobile dealership world now. The The woman that comes hey. in to buy the car now, apparently, I've heard this from a couple different sources, that she's more knowledgeable about the particular model she wants to get than the poor guy <laughs> trying to help her on the lot.
0: Yeah, and, you know, it used to be if you wanted to be that knowledgeable in anything, you had to spend hours and hours in the library, right? And the research bar to do that was so high. Uh, that you wouldn't, you couldn't. And then vendors in, in B2B markets would hide their information because they felt it was their job to really only, only tell their secrets to people they thought they could sell to.
1: And they could leverage that information asymmetry that Daniel Pink and others talk about, where the, every time the buyer wanted to get some more information, then the seller could extract another pound of flesh, another commitment.
0: Exactly. And we've really blown that model up. And you know, one of the steps beyond viewpoint and breaking through that I talk about in the book is experience and how it's now incumbent on us to deliver and demonstrate our value early and often during the sales cycle. So breakthrough marketing takes the approach you know, that is really threefold. The first is, it's my job as a seller or a marketer to teach my customer something about how I can make their world better, hence the viewpoint story. Second, I better come in and I better be able to articulate for that potential buyer the uniqueness of the value that I can deliver to them without spending a lot of discovery time with them. And then the third is I've got to show that value, demonstrate that value day zero. Uh, one of the CEOs I work with had a great quote to me. He said, uh, you know, we used to talk about time to value in weeks and months. We now talk about it in days and hours. So. I'd even back that up, is you better be able to demonstrate your value even before the buyer buys something from you.
1: Yeah. You know, somewhat related to that, you talk in the book very clearly about ROI, that's now table stakes. (laughs) Don't think you're being different just by showing the ROI of your product during your your sales process. I mean, you have to have it, but that's right. That was another good sort of wake-up call in there. Let me ask you to explain, let's jump around to something else here. I wanted to ask you to explain the following, because I think the the audience is going to be interested in this. And I'm going to quote from the book. You say, with the advances in marketing automation, new channels of communication, and the avalanche of marketing data now available, marketing has evolved in many CEOs' view
0: from a black art to a black science. What does that mean? Yeah, you know, I think if you go back 10 or 15 years in time. Marketing and marketing professionals were viewed as artists. Yeah, they were the guys, the madmen and the advertising executives, the people who did this magical thing of taking, you know, your product and turning it into a slogan, an advertising campaign, a brand. And if you looked at the CEO, you know, they kind of like scratch their head and judge on how good the bottom line was, but really didn't know how to evaluate the marketer from that perspective and so the big pushback and i think rightfully so was to cost justify your existence and so marketing metrics became very important measurement uh, became very important and continues to become more important at the same time the way we go to market changed dramatically because of the internet and because of the marketing technologies that have sprung up to let you take advantage Of this new communication medium, whether that's the internet, mobile phones, or whatever comes after that, augmented reality, who knows? And so now the marketer spends more money on technology probably than anyone else in the organization. And now the CEO looks at it and says, What are you spending all that money on? Right? I don't understand. Why do you need, you know, you have Marketo and you have Salesforce and you have, you know, product X and product Y. Why do you need to spend another? Half a million dollars on three more acquisitions of technology this quarter.
1: Yeah, and they're, they're probably adding on. In fact, you, CMO, are spending more than the CIO.
0: What the heck? That's right. And Gartner <laughs> predicted that about four years ago, yeah. I think. And I'm, I'm guessing it's probably come true now. And so, you know, now marketers are defending their technology spend. And so they're defending their science as opposed to their art. Now, the reality of but it. But the
1: black part, you mean it's still not quite understood by the C suite?
0: That's right. Now, the reality of it is. Marketing has always been a a mix of art and science. And, you know, in my mind, it will always continue to be a mix of art and science. And the pendulum will swing. I think you're seeing the pendulum swing back a little more to the art aspects of it now. But, you know, it'll swing to science again later.
1: Yeah. You know, a couple things about sales I wanted to ask you. you. You mentioned that companies that continue to manage a, quote, sales cycle are playing yesterday's game. Can you explain what you mean by that?
0: Sure. A selling cycle has a fundamental proposal that I meet, qualify, demonstrate, and close a, a prospect. And that the who's in control of that, the seller is. It doesn't work like that but, anymore. But they're
1: not. The seller's not in control. Yeah, that's right. Okay.
0: And the buyer is now in control, and the buyer doesn't go through that process. The buyer you know, as a corporate executive board will say, is sixty percent through their buying before they even talk to a salesperson. So, if something's over sixty percent before the salesperson get involved, it's clearly no longer a selling cycle; it's really a buying cycle. And the buying cycle is: what do I need? Where can I get it? And should I pick you? So, it's really become incumbent on us and uh, differentiating why they should need us, and that. You know, it kind of goes back to this return on strategy argument. ROI is really important in a selling cycle. In a buying cycle, I don't even get to consideration unless I'm sol- solving a strategic problem for the customer.
1: Yeah, and you also mentioned, uh, related to that, companies need to move from diagnostic selling to authority-driven selling. Can you explain that?
0: Yeah, we've talked a little bit about that. That's the questioning. Yeah, you know, let me walk in and ask you 100 questions about yourself, and then I can tell you, how my product might solve your problems, ain't it anymore. It's now really authority-driven, meaning I come in and I teach you something. So it's really shifted to, let me teach you something. Forrester did some research, and they surveyed a large number of B2B buyers. And they said, what do you want the most from the sales rep? Well, you know where product knowledge came came in number six, right? Number one was they understand my business, meaning I are saying they understand my business. Number two was they teach me something. And what are you going to teach them? That's where the viewpoint story can become really powerful because the viewpoint story gives you four opportunities to teach. You can teach about the current environment. You can teach about the shortfalls of the approaches to solving problems you have. You can teach about new approaches. And you can teach about the value of those new approaches across those four acts.
1: And you mentioned earlier, it seems so consistent with the Challenger sale and the Challenger customer books. (laughs) The buyer is not sitting there waiting to have three calls every day where they're asked the same 100 questions. You got to show up with some insights, teach them something about their company. Very interesting. I learned a new acronym from your book, Ken. It's a yawner, Y-A-W-N-E-R, which for the listener's benefit, it stands for yet another white paper nobody ever reads. And you estimate that about 2% of white papers are actually readable. Why do most B2B white papers stink?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I came up with that acronym when I was in an operating role and one of my employees said, we want to write a, a technical white paper about this product. And I said, you're going to put everyone to sleep. You're going to make them yawn. And somehow this yawner thing just came to me. Uh, I think really three things happen. The first is all we do is we create a photo album of our baby, right? <laughs> you ever meet a new parent, and all they want to do is show you 200 uh, baby pictures. And, you know, the first one's kind of cute, and the second one's kind of Interesting. And by the third one, you know, you're just saying, I've seen this baby before. <laughs> <laughs> right? So we are obsessed with talking about ourselves. I think the second thing is we have a lot of demands on us as marketing communicators, and we're driven to include every point of view in the organization into that white paper. So, you know, that's kind of the kitchen sink approach, as I call it. We try to kill five birds with one stone and we don't do any of them well. And then, third, we ask people who aren't skilled at writing and editing to create the white paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you add those three things together and most of them just aren't very good. Now, uh, formats of delivering of content like video and ebooks and self learning create amazing opportunities for us to do some of those things in a way that's much more interactive i do think there's still a role for things like white papers especially in more technical sales where at some point in the buying group there's going to be a technical evaluator who is going to want to understand how the darn thing works so there is a need for longer format more detailed content it's just not a top of funnel need
1: Yeah. And I think also the things that you describe as to why white papers, they often don't work well, that's basic content marketing. (laughs) It's basic empathy. (laughs) Who is it and when are they going to want this? And all of those things that you need to make a good white paper, you still have to have for a good video or a blog post or whatever kind of content creating. So That's right. Ken, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be?
0: I think it would be to focus on context and your customer's world before you worry about what you're going to say about yourself. Mm -hmm. And remember, it's their story that you want to connect to, not yours.
1: That is some of the best marketing advice, and it, I think, is also some of the very hardest for companies to do. What books have inspired your working career, Ken?
0: Yeah, you know, some of the great books that have inspired me go back you know, to Jeffrey Moore's Crossing the Chasm. It was the book that you know, is more dog-eared on my bookshelf uh, than any other one. Fundamentally, it talks about what is a solution to a customer. And that's something that every marketer really needs to understand well. puts competition in context. It puts value in context. Uh, Another book a little less known is from one of my mentors in Australia named Matt Church, which is called Thought Leadership, which is a book about how do you capture and deliver thought leadership into the market. And that's been really helpful in both helping me to articulate my thought leadership, but it's also informed many of the models and metaphors that you find in launching to leading. So,
1: Ken, you mentioned Jeffrey Moore, and by podcast marketing book, podcast law, I'm required to uh, let the listener know that he also went to Stanford. So, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Are there any recent or upcoming books you recommend or looking forward to reading?
0: Yeah, I just read a book called Matchmakers. Reach over on my desk here. It's by. David Evans and Richard C He's got a long, hard to say name. Uh, the subtitle of that book is The New Economics of Multi-Sided Platforms. And what this book really uh, talks about is how you have to think about value and value delivery in new business models, which are uh, built to connect buyers, sellers, and uh, service providers together in a marketplace. And more and more of the clients I see are moving towards models like that from the traditional SaaS model. And this book's been really influential in helping me to think through uh, how to apply some of the concepts in launching to leading to those types of businesses. Oh,
1: interesting. Yeah. And don't worry about the difficulty of pronouncing co-author's name. We're going to have a link to that book along with all the other things you're talking about in the show notes for this episode at marketingbookpodcast.com. Ken, how best can listeners learn more about you and your book?
0: Yeah, that's really easy. You just go to kenretzky.com. There's a page about the book there. You can look on uh, any of the bookseller sites like Amazon or others and see some reviews of the book, get some sample content. And then uh, if you want to learn more about how I engage with customers to help them uh, do this, you can find some of that as well on uh, KenRutsky.com.
1: Yeah, it's K-E-N-R-U-T-S-K-Y.com, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. But you also include, come on, Ken, implementation templates and other tools there.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, There's a couple of downloadable templates in the uh, resource area of the website, which essentially help you to build a viewpoint story, help you to filter out to your unique value. So some implementation tools to help you put some of the concepts in the book into practice and give them a a try yourself.
1: Yeah. Did you hear that, listener? Free stuff.
0: (laughs) Free stuff. Right. And then when you really want to uh, play the concerto on those instruments, you can give me a call. There you go.
1: (laughs) So the name of the book is Launching to Leading, How B2B Market Leaders Create Flash Mobs, Martial Parades, and Ignite Movements. The author is Ken Rutsky. Ken, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: Thanks, Doug. And I hope all of yours and your... Listeners' heroes' journeys are successful ones.
1: And that closes the book on episode 109 of the Marketing Book Podcast. Links to everything linkable in the interview you just listened to are at marketingbookpodcast.com. And that's also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. Let's meet in person. If you're in the Raleigh, North Carolina area, I'll be speaking to the Triangle Marketing Club on February 28th about the seven concepts from 100 marketing and sales books every marketer needs to know. Want me to come and speak to your group? All I need is a bus ticket, a bar tab, and a hotel room. To contact me, just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave a message or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name, again, is Douglas Burdett. Or send me a tweet at my Twitter handle, Marketing Book. I look forward to hearing from you. And please join us next time as we welcome Thomas Barta to the show to talk about his new book, The 12 Powers of a Marketing Leader, How to Succeed by Building Customer and Company Value. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.